Okay, uh, this uh, uh, Shior, per your request, actually takes us back about a week in the daf to continue with the Agadot of the Churban. In the last Shior, we looked at the very famous story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa. We looked a little bit further than that. Uh, and um, I'm actually going to, to quickly deal with the rest of that because I want to focus on another very famous story and um, which shows up in numerous texts and try to figure out what's going on in the story. And this will be, the focus of this will be a study in Agadah uh, and in how Agadot are used uh, pedagogically and didactically by Chazal. So we're going to start by just finishing up with Rabbi Yochanan. If you remember, at the bottom of page one, Rabbi Yochanan, well, he, he didn't do it at the bottom of page one, but Rabbi Yochanan took a pasuk in Mishlei. Uh, Happy is someone who's always, the way we translate it, is always wary and who's uh, flexible as a result. And, uh, have, and somebody who is stubborn will end up in trouble. And he applied that pasuk to three aphorisms. There were three famous uh, parables that people used to describe events around the destruction of the Mikdash and further. One important historic note or meta-historic note um, in the world of Chazal. It's important to know Chazal are not historians. And when Chazal tell a story, they're telling a story for didactic reasons, not for informative reasons. Um, thinking of history that way is a, is a relatively new idea. Think of history as I want to assemble the facts to figure out what happened as opposed to I want to learn from the story something valuable uh, and to quote the very famous uh, not philo-Semite George Santiana so that uh, we don't have to repeat the past. Um, and so there were three aphorisms that were going around at the time. Now, the reason that this is curious is these are events that took place over the course of at least 80 years from each other, if not longer. When, when Turmalka was destroyed, it may have been significantly before the destruction of Yerushalayim. Betar happened uh, in the summer of 135, and uh, the destruction of Yerushalayim was in the year 70. And so Yochanan is, and, and this is, by the way, the, the way Chazal would look at the events. If you look at Midrash Eicha, Midrash Eicha, um, which we talked about last week, and we're going to see another passage from Midrash Eicha today, uh, Midrash Eicha deals with Eicha um, uh, homiletically, as interpretable to the entire skein of destructive and traumatic events that took place from the year roughly 50 or so, all the way way past the Bar Kokhba, so into the middle of, 20, of the second century, including famously the martyrology that we repeat on Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur, and has several different uh, versions, the, what's called the Asara Hugemachut, which takes place in the late 22nd century, middle of the second, second century. And so here you have three statements that really are the sort of thing people would say much, much later when talking about that black period of destruction, about the destruction of Shalayim and Turmalka whenever that happened in Beitar. And the point of these aphorisms was that each one of these things was destroyed because of something minute. In the case of Yerushalayim, because of the minute difference between Akamtsa and Abarkamtsa, and of course, the mistake made, perhaps it was a mistake in inviting the wrong guy to the party, whatever it led from that. We dealt with that last week. Uh, 
a tanigola with tanigolta. And here it's a little bit different because here it's not because of the slight difference between a rooster and a hen. It's because of a rooster and a hen the Tormalka was destroyed. And Ashaika the Daisbach means sort of the shaft of a wheel. Uh Betar was destroyed. And it's unclear what that means also because that, unlike the first two, is not two different things that are close to each other. It's one thing. But what these three stories have in common is destruction happened because of something very insignificant, very minor, very minute. And so, remember, Rabbi Yochan's statement is that stubborn people end up in trouble. Sometimes you'll get hung up on very little things. And by the way, that happened, as we saw last week, with in the Bavli's version, Zechariah ben Abkulas, getting hung up on details of halacha and didn't see the larger picture. And we talked about that. So um, let's take a look at the other two stories, just the stories themselves, not the follow-up. Tanigolta So what's the story? There was a custom, and we don't know if this was a universal custom or local custom in Tormalka. When a bride and groom would go out, presumably go out from their chupat, they would lead a rooster and a, and a hen in front of them as a sign of fertility. Right? Should have lots of kids like chickens. Okay. It, it, it beats uh, throwing rice. Right, right. Uh, it's, it's, it's the same idea, though. And, and by the way, it's not uncommon. In the Gemara, we hear about them pouring wine out in front of them and, and throwing toasted corns, all of these symbolic things of festivity. So, So one day, a Roman legion was walking past, and evidently there was a wedding. So they saw the rooster, they saw the chicken, they took them. Uh, they wanted to eat. In other words, the Jews were involved in some celebratory piece. So the people all beat up the soldiers. Now, the, the, the issue here is, just on the story level, is the people didn't step back to say, wait a second, okay, so we can't follow the minig of the chicken and the rooster for this particular wedding. Do we really think this couple is going to be cursed with childlessness as a result? I don't know. But even if that's the case, is that worth beating up a bunch of Roman soldiers because you know what's going to happen afterwards. Now, the ability to beat up a bunch of Roman soldiers is also a good question. Now, who says they have the ability to do that? Not our concern. Our concern here, as is many often the case in Agadot, is not what happened, but what's this teaching us? So the end of the story is, So they came, the soldiers came and told, again, it's probably the Roman prefect, the Jews are rebelling against you, so they came and they destroyed them. Now, whenever the destruction of Bartitukotermanka happened, it very likely happened not in the context of the destruction of Shalim, meaning at some other period, which means at some other period the Jews got way out of hand in their treatment of their Roman overlords, and they didn't take into account the larger picture, and they got killed. By the way, nobody here is faulting the Romans, although certainly we would have told them, let the Jews have their chicken. If they got upset, let them be upset. But that's not our business to tell, tell them that. Our business is to have some seichel. And here we didn't have any seichel. The second story, and we're going to look at both of them together, is a shaykh the daisbach har betar. This is very similar. There was a custom. Again, when a baby boy was born, they would plant, evidently in some place, they would plant a cedar tree. Yenukta shatli tornita. When a girl would be born, they would plant a uh, cypress tree. Kavuminsubi kaitzilahu va'avdu ganana. 
So when a couple got married, they would say, let's go find that boy's cedar tree and let's go find that girl's cypress tree. They cut them down and they would use, use the wood to build a marital, probably a marital house now, not a canopy, a marital house. The interesting thing is that genana here actually means something. It's protective. Like a chupa is supposed to be, it's protective. So yom achad avikachalfa sorry. One day, what? Somebody asked? One day, the the Caesar's daughter, and by the way, there are several stories with Barthe de Kesar in our literature, including famously uh, with Rabbi Ishmael, who was very beautiful. And remember when they were going to kill him, she said, save his face, that whole icky story. So, Barthe de Kesar, she was traveling through, the shaft of her wheel broke on the wagon. So they found a cedar tree. They cut down a cedar tree and they used it. So all the Jews in the area said, oh, you cut down that kid's cedar tree. How can you do it? And they beat up the Romans. Now, this is very strange to say that this is the reason that Beitar was destroyed, meaning the fortress at Beitar, which is where Bar Kokhba and his rebels, you all know where Beitar is, right down the hill from in, 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 near Emekaila, in that area. Um, that that the the fortress of Beitar was breached, attacked, and destroyed because of this one event is historically it doesn't work. Because let's think about it: what was happening in the year 135 when it was destroyed? We were at the end of three years of rebellion, successful rebellion. The Romans had more soldiers in Palestine than anywhere in the world, including Rome at the time, and they were trying to beat Bar Kokhba. Remember, Bar Kokhba decimated, and that's a funny word, because you know what decimate comes from. It means when you destroy one-tenth of the army from Dessa, right? Bar Kokhba actually wiped out the uh, 22nd Legion of the Roman army. And it was a very successful rebellion. And to think that at that time, people were still planting these trees and having these customs and uh, going on as if, uh, you know, it's regular times, and suddenly got upset when the Romans came and cut down a tree that they needed for their own use, and that that's how the Romans decided to destroy Beitar. The Romans were looking for Beitar. It's very difficult, which means that we have several choices here. One choice is to discount it. I'm not willing to do that. Chachamim are called Chachamim for a reason, because they're Chachamim. Um, the other way is to take it literally, but that presents problems with other Midrashim and historic information that we have about what happened. So the preferred way, and I'm just following the Rambam's directive in, in reading Agadot, is to look at this Agadah as perhaps being uh, more impactful when read symbolically. All right. So what is the symbolism? Let's go back uh, that the that the uh, Gemara itself gives to the chicken and the rooster. Looking at that story, so chicken and rooster have the symbolism of fertility. Fertility. Um, However, in the in the story about the trees, trees also have that symbolism. And I'll show it to you in a second. And this is uh, a claim that some have made about this Agadah, is uh, if you take a look in Tilim Kuf Chavchet, it's source five on the page, it's a beautiful mizmor. Um, some of you may have heard it or had it actually sung at your wedding. Mizmor Kuf Chavchet is sung at Yaki weddings. Uh, your wife is like a uh, a fruitful vine on the sides of your house. Your sons are like sat young um, olive saplings. And uh, in Tilim, famously, Tilim Sadibet, that Sadiq is compared to an Erez and to uh, and to uh, Tamar, 
to different trees, right? And the notion that that may indeed represent children, in which case both of these agadot are really hitting home in that the what the what we're accusing the Romans of doing is of killing our children, and that that's the symbolism of of these things. However, I think that that analysis falls a little short, because although it may be true, um, the the big complaint about the Romans, in from our perspective, um, was uh, was the the destruction of the Mikdash. I mean, it was after the event, uh, the, the the siege, the the, the bloodbath, etc., were all big. But in but in the larger picture, after the event. Just like the difference between Parake of Eichad and Parag Aleph through Dalad, Aleph through Dalad hardly mentioned the Mikdash, but then with the distance of probably two generations, suddenly the Mikdash becomes prominent. And I think I believe that that's a big part of it. Now, when we take a look at the, um, parenthetically, uh, an Erez becomes powerful in the story of Betar in another place. You find this passage in the Yushalmi and Ta'anit, passage 8. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Shmonu Aleph Zug Shal Tokei Kronotayim Akifin at Betar. They called it Beit Tar, the, 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 the house of Beit Tar. Now they're telling the story of Bar Kochba, whose name was actually Bar Kosba, and it was renamed Bar Kochba, but in the aftermath of his defeat, he was called by some Bar Kosba or Bar Kuziva, the son of a lie, because he didn't live up to his potential. Right, he had two hundred thousand men, and according to the story, every one of them had a finger cut off. That that's part of what they had to do to prove their bravery. said, And so the Chachamim sent the message to Bar Kochba. How come you're making all your soldiers Baalimum? So he sent back. Do you have a better way to check their bravery and their valor? Amrulo, now watch an interesting thing. Do a different test. Anybody who is able to, anybody who cannot do this, but to ride, be able to ride a horse, and while riding a horse, this really sounds like some of the things that only Native Americans could have done, or the Mongol, the Mongols under um, uh, under Genghis uh, Khan. Uh, anybody who cannot ride on his horse and while doing so uproot a cedar tree. Uh, should not be included in your soldiers. And let's give them another test of uh, bravery. But you notice that the eras again, uh, is 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 included here. But the eras really has a whole other symbolism. If you take a look uh, in uh, in Malachim Aleph, uh, when describing the Mikdash, the Mikdash is actually called Beit Yar Halavanon. It's called the House of the Lebanese Forest. Because it's built with cedars of Lebanon, some of you like me may have been born in cedars of Lebanon. But um, but cedars of Lebanon, as Lebanon, is the material of which the Beit Hamikdash is built. And so, even though that might not be the case fully with the second Mikdash, that's still the identity of the Mikdash. And so, therefore, when we speak about the Romans coming and cutting down a cedar tree that has its own important symbolism for us to use for their own, what we consider mundane purposes, we're alluding to the destruction of the Mikdash. Now, what is the symbolism here, is, or the message here, is that the people were too concerned with the symbolism of it, of it and missed the bigger picture. So there's a, a, an Erez that may be symbolic of the Mikdash, 
Fine, look what happens when you respond the way you do. The result is the real Mikdash goes down. And this is a, a, a common rebuke that we find all the way in early Naveem of people missing, sorry for the pun, missing the forest for the trees and not seeing the bigger picture. Uh, when Shaul, this is the strong rebuke against Shaul, when Shaul uh, goes to war against Amalek and his claim is, I, we saved the animals to bring korbanot. And Shmuel's answer is, that's not what God wants. God wants you to listen to him. You've got to see the bigger picture. And this is generally a, a rebuke of not understanding that the details make up something larger, and you got to step back and see that larger. doesn't mean the details don't matter, but you got to see the whole picture. Uh, parenthetically, uh, there is one other mention of a chicken, because we're talking about the chicken, in Midrash Echarabah, and we hear a story of Hadrian, um, whose bones should rot. That's the way they refer to him, right? At one point, set up guards in different cities, and anybody who tried to escape from one or the other, he grabbed them together, and then he told his his uh, officers, he said, um, by the time I finish this chicken leg, I want them to all be dead. So there's a mention in the history of somehow eating a chicken and that being associated with uh, a massacre. So it may be an illusion here. But what I'm what I'm trying to point out here in this first half of the shiur, the first section of the shiur, is that when we read these agadot, we have to understand that agadot are spoken of in symbolic language. It doesn't mean that there was no custom of a cedar and a cypress. There may have been. It doesn't mean that there was no custom of a rooster and a hen. There may have been. But the larger issue that's being communicated is that symbolically what this means, that's what's being missed. And that perhaps it was a specific cedar they got upset about, and the result was that they, the big cedar, the Mikdash, got destroyed. Is It could be that they got upset about a chicken and a rooster, and the result was that actual people were killed instead of a couple symbolically maybe being childless. So an important statement about that. But I want to go to this other story, which I want to spend most of the time on, because it's a very famous story. And by the way, um, I'll, I'll right away ask you, this story is about a woman and her seven kids. What's the woman's name? We studied it in the doc about a week ago, but what's the woman's name? So you ask somebody on the street, go up to somebody on the street and say a story about a woman and her seven kids were all killed. Uh, they will immediately tell you what her name is. Anybody know? Okay, they'll tell you Chana. Chana and her seven sons. And look it up online. Chana v'shiva baneha. Right? Interesting how that name got in here. Because the story that we read, and we're going to start by reading it in the Gemara here, doesn't use any names. All right? And so the Gemara, if you recall, tells a story about the children jumping over the boat and drowning themselves. And, and so, again, like we saw with Rabbi Yochanan, taking a, a, uh, a pasuk much earlier in Tanakh and then applying it to the story, we've been killed all day. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says that pasuk actually refers to this story. A woman and her seven kids. Now, right away, you expect, if the pasuk is, we've been killed for you all day, it's a woman and her seven sons. That, that means all eight of them, it sounds like, died in one day. Let's hear the story. At you, Kamala Kameh de Kesar. They brought this woman and the sons in front of the Kesar. And again, the Kesar is not, it's not happening in Rome. 
So they told uh, the boy, the boys, worship Avodah Zara, right? Meaning bow down to Apollo, whatever. So he quotes the Torah, says, I am Hashem, meaning I'm not going to worship any other God. So they took him out and they, and they killed him, her first son. Now, before we go any further, question I'm going to ask is, when did this happen? I'm not asking for a date or even a year. I'm asking in what period did this happen? So the minute you see that it happened before the Caesar, that has to be in Roman, the Roman period. Part of the problem is that we do not have any evidence that the Romans at any point tried to force Jews to convert. Matter of fact, the attempt to get Jews to ab abandon their practices and to embrace foreign practices was an absolutely Hellenistic move. And it was an Antiochian move that we have evidence of, of Antiochus, the bad one, the number four, uh, and his decrees against the Jews, including Jewish practice, including if a baby was circumcised and the baby was killed and then around the neck of his mother who was killed. The terrible decrees. All right, so that's one difficulty here. We'll continue. They brought the next kid. So they said to him, notice the Kesha is not talking. He quotes another pasuk. Okay. Um, and this goes on. And we get through all six kids, and each kid, by the way, quotes another pasuk. Now notice what the psukim are about. The psukim here are about loyalty to God. And, and not doing Avodah Zarah. You're not allowed to do Avodah Zarah. If you do Avodah Zarah, you No, don't bow down to another God. Shema Yisrael, right? Um, Etc. All six of them. Now, they brought number seven. And here's where things change. Remember, that's a woman and her seven kids. We don't know if this is the youngest or the oldest or anybody else. We don't know whether this was done in order yet. They said to him, worship Avodazar. Now, you would assume that each kid, seeing that his brother was killed for not doing this, would either become more weakened in their resolve and more scared, or the opposite. And that's what's happened. He said, I'm not going to do it because, notice what he says, which is in Parshat Kitavo, which may mean... There's a lot of speculation about what the word Hamarta and Hamir mean, but what it may mean is that you have made a declaration regarding God, and God has made a declaration regarding you. And the midrash on it is Kvar Nishbanu La Baruchu She'ein Anu Mavrin Now, critical to hear the second half. We have taken an oath that we're not going to swap God for another God. He took an oath regarding us. That he's not going to switch us out for another nation. Which is odd because what does that have to do with the conversation? In other words, the, the people are saying to these kids, the onlookers are saying to the kids, worship Avodazar, bow to Apollo, worship Mercury, whatever. And the response is, our Torah forbids it. Our, our response is, we believe in our God. There is no other God, whatever. This guy turns around and says, God, and we have a we have a pact that we're not going to give up on our God, and God's not giving back up on us. What does the second half of that statement have to do with this issue? Very strange. You understand that it's incongruous, doesn't fit. So Amarle Kesar, 
So I'm just going to interject something here that I heard many years ago from, from Professor Lyman, a fascinating thing. If you remember the sugya of Yehareg Val Yavor, we've done it twice in Tubot, and it's coming up uh, in a little while in Sanhedrin, in a while. In the sugya of Yehareg Val Yavor, that says, you know, that, that if you're ever forced to violate the law to save your life, you should violate the law with the exception of three things. However, there are two caveats. One of them is when it's done in public, the rules may be different. And the other piece is when it's done at a time of persecution, then the bar goes higher, shall we say. The demands go higher. And you have to give your life up for anything. And the example the Gemara gives is, even to change your shoelace. It's a very strange thing. Meaning they want you to change your shoelace, say, no, you can kill me first. What does that mean? And the, the commentaries are all over the place of what it means. They had one particular color that was the color of the pagans, and we wore the Jewish color. Right? I, I don't know if you guys know, some of us, anybody here, I'm not sure when I know, grew up in any of the Zionist youth movements. So if you remember, in the old days, we all had the same shirt. Remember, it was the blue shirt with the with the, uh, with the the shoestring holes, the eyelets in it. And what particular group you belong to depended on the color of the shoelace. So the socialists were white, the communists were red, the B'nai Kiva was black. You know, everybody had uh, their own color. And so there's some who suggest that that's what happened there is that the pagans had a particular color of shoelace, we had a different color, and if they said, change your shoelace, we wouldn't do it. So Professor Lyman suggests, based on this Gemara, that it actually meant something else. I'll show it to you. Amar le Kesar. So the Kesar says to this last kid, kushpanka, I'm going to throw down my seal. V'shakle, I want you to lean over and pick it up. I want everybody around to think that you've accepted my rule. In other words, everybody hears me saying, or hears the onlooker saying, bow, bow to the idol. Now, the idol, in many cases, was conflated with the leader. Not necessarily the deification like we have in, uh, say, in Egypt or in Persia, the deification of the emperor, but rather there was an identification of the idol with the emperor. And so bowing to the idol would be like accepting the emperor as your god. And so he said, you know what? I'm just going to throw something on the ground, lean over and pick it up, and it'll look like you accepted it. Which, by the way, if you think about it, is pretty pathetic as a way of uh, of gaining what you want. Amarle, so this kid says to the Caesar, Chaval Allah Kesar, Chaval Allah Kesar. In English, I can't translate any better than what a wuss you are. All right? If you're so worried about your own kavod that you're willing to play this game, how much more so I should be worried about the kavod HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I refuse to do it. Now, the end of the story is Afkul the Miktale. They took him out to kill him. Now, this woman is standing and she's watching seven out of seven, her seventh out of seven children being killed on that day. So the mother said to them, Let me just kiss my son a little bit. Amralo, so they allowed her. She said, He evidently, either she's speaking to him and having him transmit it to his brothers already dead, or else they haven't yet killed the brothers. They're going to line him up, but don't kill him. She said, Go tell my go tell Avraham. Meaning you're going to die. So go tell Avraham. 
You tied Yitzchak up for one offering. It's a poetic way of saying, and I gave up seven, right? But of course, Avram, you didn't give up one. You were ready to give up one. I did give up seven. And what did she then do? She went to the roof, jumped off, and killed herself. And it's all starts from a midrash on the pasuk in Tehilim and in uh, how do you call it and in Shmuel. The mother of the children is happy. In remember, she's an akaratabai. So it's the irony of that that, that she's happy. Now, where, what's the story? What's happening in the story? And why are we telling the story? And notice that the that the sons are all providing psukim, and the seventh son provides psukim in a whole different direction. Well, the whole story is strange. Right? And again, we don't have a record of the Romans practicing this sort of thing. Now, this story was very popular. Popular doesn't necessarily mean happy, but it's a very popular story. And you find that, as always often happens in the Midrashim, every version of the story is a little different. Now, how do you account for differences in versions of the story? You know, by the way, the most popular Midrashim we have, the Midrash about Rachel giving the simanim to Leah so that she wouldn't be embarrassed, the Midrash about Avraham and the idol and the baseball bat. But the popular Midrashim, almost every one of them has multiple versions, and they're not the same. Now, you could argue that uh, they're different because there was one original version, and then mistakes were made as they were transmitted, but that's a little very hard because there was great attention paid to detail in these stories. So when you find a small thing, you could say a copyist made an error, we have to look at the manuscripts. But the stories themselves are a little bit different. Let's take a look at the Psikta and see what's going on. The Psikta is uh, 7th century, but it's Eretz Yisrael. Important to note. Here we got a name. Her name is Miriam Batanhum. I made her an akara. Remember the pasuk is Moshivi So he said, I made her an akara. And here akara always means a barren woman. Here akara means a woman whose kids have died. In order to elate her with her children. Latid Lavo in Olam Haba. Amru Rabotenu. Here we go. Here's the story. Masayab Miriam Batanchum Bimehashmad. So now we're told when did this happen? In the times of Shmad. When is the period of Shmad? It is in the fourth and fifth decades of the second century, in the immediate aftermath of Bar Kokhba. And Hadrian is the ugly name we associate with that persecution. And this is the persecution that we associate the ten martyrs with. Being being affected by this, this is the period we call Shmad, even though we have other Shmad in our history, most notably, of course, in the middle of twentieth century. Shayula Shiva Banim. She had seven sons. Tafsuatarishon. Notice they grabbed the first one. Amrulo Bovi Now watch what happens. Amarlam Aini Kofer Belohim. I'm not going to reject God. What happened? They uh, they slaughtered him. And then they caught the second one, and he said, I'm not giving up on God. And then did the same thing. The third one, the fourth one, etc. And then the youngest one was left. Notice how the story already is different. What did you notice immediately that's different about this story than the one in the Bavli? Besides the fact that now we know we're going in age order, because the last one left is the youngest. Um, they didn't quote any Pesukim. 
Exactly. Very good, Bill. They did not quote any psukim. They just said, I'm not doing it. I'm any kofar. I'm not going to reject God. I'm not going to deny God. All right? And so it goes on. Um... And by the way, the, the seventh guy, they just say to him, do it or we can do the same thing we did to your brothers. Notice, what's his, his response? I want to go and take counsel with my mother. Now, this may remind you of a very popular story from the medieval period, late medieval period. And that's the story about Amnon. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Well, fill it in. Uh, Unatanatokef. What's the story behind Unatanatokef? So there is an Agadah. It, it's not true because Unatanatokef was much older than this. But there's a famous story there. Zerua tells a story about uh, during the period of the Crusades that there was a great Rav and they came to town and they said to him, convert. And he said, I want to think about it for three days. And then he had such terrible pains over the fact that he didn't just outright say no that he went through terrible tribulations, and then they they killed him, and he came into shul without arms or legs. Sometimes he was dying, and he said unatanatokef and died that way. And that's the story you'll see in a lot of the sidurim, uh, you know, on the footnotes about unatanatokef. We found unatanatokef in the Geniza from hundreds of years earlier than that, so he wasn't the composer of it, but it's a powerful story. Here you would assume kind of the same thing. A guy saying to his, the Romans, you know, let me go talk to my mom and see if I want to do Avodazar or not. Like, why are you giving any credence to this? Halach Eitzelimos, he went to his mother. Now, by the way, you notice that the mother in the first story played very, very, very small role. She didn't do anything until the last kid was killed and she gave a message and then she killed herself. What do you think I should do, mom? Which, by the way, is a little bit strange. And now in almost all of the good manuscripts, this does not appear in the printed version, this line appears. Listen to what she's saying. Is this what you want? All your brothers are going to be lying in the bosom of Abraham. I don't know about you guys. I, I knew in that song when I was a kid. It's a Christian song. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. We thought it was the funniest thing. But this is an Agadah that exists also in our literature, that when you die, you, you're kind of held by Avraham at some point. So you want all your sons to be held by Avraham, and you're going to be held by Esav? How did Esav get in here? So she says to her son, please don't pay any attention. You refuse to do it. They killed him. Notice, in this story, what happens to the mother? She's killed also. She doesn't commit suicide. She's killed also. Now, by the way, remember that the story is about a woman and her seven sons, or Miriam and her seven sons. Now, Miriam and her seven sons are all in the same boat. They're all killed by the Romans on this day. All right. In the future, I'm going to... He laid her with her sons. Okay. Um, now, and this is, may help us a little bit. The Midrash goes on and says, there's another story about that Pasuk, or another story that spins from that Pasuk. Uh, because Chana was an Akara, and then she had kids. 
Chana's not the one in the story. Chana's Chana Shmuel's mom. But notice that that's how Chana sort of gets into the story. I'll show you where Chana actually shows up in the story, and uh, and we'll go from there. However, this story has yet another version, earlier than the one we just saw in Midrash Echaraba, on the pasuk Al Ela Ani Bochia. This Wednesday night, we'll be reading Echan. We get to the Ayin pasuk in Parak Aleph. The only parak where the alphabet's in the same order that we're familiar with, Ayin Pei. Get to the Ayin Pasuk, it's Al Ela Anibochia. I weep for these. And commenting on that, we have the story. She and her sons were taken captive. He took each one and imprisoned them separately. He tells the first guy, bow down to the idol like your brothers did. And he doesn't know what his brothers did. No way my brothers did. I'm not going to bow down. He quotes a pasuk. All right, Bill, there's your pasuk. All right, and by the way, the same thing happens with all of the um, other five brothers till we get to the last. All right, and by the way, the psukim are shifted in this story and in, in the Bavli, who uses which pasuk, but they're all the same psukim. They're just kind of switched around. Look at the last son again. Which may mean that the first six were in any order, but they got to the last one as the youngest. Again, they told the same lie. Your brothers all bowed, but you bowed too. My brothers didn't bow. But we already swore to God that we wouldn't swap him for any other God. And he quotes the same Psukim. And again, remember this incongruous statement. It says nothing to do with the issue, seemingly. Just like we took an oath that we wouldn't swap him. Are you starting to get a sense of where this is going? He said that God also took an oath that he would not swap us for another nation. Right? And then we have the same ending. All right, I'll throw my ring in front of the idol. People will see that you that you uh, did my bidding. He said, well, you to you, Kesar. I should be afraid of you, your flesh and blood. Right? And now watch what happens. It's, it's, it's amazing how this spins off. We haven't seen this before. So the Caesar says to him, Is there a God in the world? Do you think there's a world without a leader, without a God? Right? So the, the Roman turns to the kid. The Roman, by the way, is now having a debate with a kid. And he says to him, Does your God have a mouth? You know what we say about your Avodazara? You got a mouth and can't speak. God's word created the world. And he goes through mouth, eyes, ears, legs, hands, all of it. That's the same famous um, uh, polemic against idolatry that you find in Tilim numerous times. Uh, and you find it in. Uh, in several other books of Tanakh, 
he he flushes it out here, and you and you can see it here. By the way, I, I presented a translation uh, in the English below, right? And then, um, right, So the Caesar turns to him and uses a familiar argument: If God is so powerful, he can speak and he has power and he can walk everything. Why didn't he save you? You guys have stories about heroes that were saved from Avodazara. Chanan Mishal were thrown into the fire in the furnace and they didn't die. Chanan Mishal Azariah, this is a great line. Hayu Zakain. They were holy people. They also fell in the hands of a king who was worthy. Watch this shtach, it's great. We are not so worthy. And we fell into the hands of a, a no good guy also. You're not worthy for God to intervene with. Very powerful statement. Right? We're not worthy for God to, uh, to avenge our blood. By the way, if God wants to kill us, he's got lots of, he's got animals, he can kill us. All sorts of ways to kill us. Do you know why God handed us over to you to be killed instead of having us get killed by a wild animal, so that God can then punish you for killing us. Ah. Now this kid has these amazing arguments. So the see the the Roman directed that they kill this kid. Amarlo imo. Now here comes the mother. The chayecha kesar. Let my let me kiss and hug my son. Look what she does. She starts nursing her son. And then she said to the Caesar, as she's nursing him, please kill us together. I wouldn't do something like that. Why? Watch. Because in your own law, there's a prohibition against killing an animal and its mother on the same day. So I'm not going to kill both of you and your son on the same day. So the kid turns to the Caesar and says, what, you're so firm, you can feel fully all the Torah, and, and so that you're going to be abide by that and not kill us? Right? They took the kid away. Don't be afraid. You're going to your brothers. The brothers are already killed. Then more we have to get back to that Asav line. And go tell Avram, a little more explicit. You built one Mizbeach and didn't offer up your son. I built seven Mizbachot and offered up all my children on them. Plus, yours was just a test. Me was real. It turned out this kid was only six years old and, and changed. This kid who had a polemic against the, against the king. Look at this. Their God allows them to be killed, and they're giving up their life for him. Notice what happens. Critical to note. The woman went crazy. And she jumped off the roof. Right? And this is the... the uh, Now, 
besides everything else and the much more developed ending here and the whole piece about Avodazara, there's another piece of, of the puzzle that's very strange. In the earlier stories, the woman jumped off the roof. Here, she goes crazy after a while and then jumps off the roof. What's the difference between those two? What's the difference between saying the woman after her sons were killed? One's intentional and one's like out of her control. Exactly. So I'm going to ask you this question. What is the status of somebody who kills themselves? Is it ever permissible to kill yourself? This question was asked, by the way, in the camps. We have this Shiloh from, from World War II. People ask the Shiloh, I'm going to be interrogated, I'm going to be tortured, and I don't think that I'm going to be able to hold on in the torture, and I'll reveal where the hiding place is or somebody else's secrets. May I kill myself in order to not violate that, that uh, confidence? And the answer is not so clear. But I'll ask you a different question. What happens in those circumstances where someone is told, violate the law or I'll kill you? And the law is not Abu Dazara. Are they allowed to say, kill me? Or are they obligated to eat, to do the, violate the law and stay alive? That's a machloket between Rambam and Tosfot. And it's essentially a machloket between sort of Ashkenaz and Sfard. And I'll, I'll show you how that plays out here. But we have one further version of the story in Hebrew. And I'm just going to point out a couple of things about this, because I want to get to, to the point of this whole thing. I'm, I'm, I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you now, but then we're going to bring it all together and going to see something powerful happening in this Midrash, and then step back and look at some of the, the methodology of Midrash um, uh, from, from a panoramic view. Um, the story is also told in Eliyahu Rambah, and there's a few variations. One is that we're told that she's a widow, so there's no husband there, but I think we could have sort of assumed that in the earlier story. Um, in in uh, in this version of the story, um, again, you have the um, the sons refusing to bow, and they give sukim. They give sukim. They refuse to bow. And then there's the whole diatribe against Avodah Zarah and you have Mao's, et cetera, et cetera. This story actually is much older than this. It's a much older story. Now, let's think about it. In the four versions that we've seen, which are in the Bavli, which are in the Psikta, which are in the Echa Rabbah and Tanad Eliyahu, the story takes place under Roman rule. And as I mentioned, we don't have any evidence that the Romans ever tried to coerce Jews to do Avodah Zarah. They would set up idols in different public places and try to make the presence more dominant. Remember that Mishnah in Avodah with Rabbi Gamliel in the bathhouse and Aphrodite? But it, the, this idea of forcing them was really not a Roman tactic. It wasn't even a Roman goal. Now, we're going to go back a few hundred years, and we're going to see what very likely is the earliest version of the story. And it comes from the Book of Maccabees. Now, I've always tried to keep my sources in the original. The problem is the original book of Maccabees is Greek. So I, I don't really think we wanted to wrestle with that for all this time. And seeing a translation in English is 
not the same as a translation in Hebrew, but it's still a translation, so I figured we'd go with English. And this story, by the way, appears in greater detail in the fourth book of Maccabees. Just one word about Maccabees. Maccabees is four books, one, two, three, and four. Maccabees 1 is considered to be, Maccabees is for the most part the story of the Maccabean Wars, including the Hanukkah story, but that's not the only thing, and it's not even the prominent thing there. Um, and um, first Maccabees is considered to be historically quite reliable. Second Maccabees, which was evidently written about 60 years after the event, uh, is considered to be a little bit more of a, I would call it propaganda, and try to promote the idea of celebrating the Maccabean victories and Hanukkah, etc. Third and fourth are more apocalyptic. Um, this book, Maccabees, is part of a, uh, a collection of literature that we refer to as the Apocrypha. Apocrypha is a Greek word which means things that are hidden, epokephera, epokephera. And, um, and it is books that were composed in the largely in the second and first century BCE and first century CE by Jews uh, that were written to be more books of Tanakh. And Chachamim made the decision to seal Tanakh and not to allow them in. And as a result of that, these books were actually banned. And Jews were not studying them. Jews were familiar with them. And in some cases, we find them quoting, most famously, Ben Sirah. Uh, however, the Christian church picked up on it. And that's kind of how we got to it. And in the Christian, in the Catholic Bible, the first two books of Maccabee, uh, Maccabees are canonized. Uh, so you can find it if you happen to have a Catholic Bible around and read the book of Maccabees. Of course, you can find it online. And uh, the interesting thing about the Maccabees, we'll talk about it in a minute in regards to that. However, here's the story as it appears in Maccabees 2, chapter 7. Happened also that seven brothers and their mother were addressed and were being compelled by the king. Now, the king here is Antiochus IV you know, the bad guy from Hanukkah, under torture with whips and thongs to partake of unlawful swine's flesh. Notice how different the story is. What was he trying to get them to do? To eat trade. Eat closet, right? One of them, acting as their spokesman, said, what do you intend to ask and learn from us, for we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors? The king fell into a rage, and they're torturing them, and that the, the boy who spoke up has his tongue cut out, and they scalp him, and they do all this terrible stuff. By the way, this is well-documented. The Greeks did stuff like this. At least the Seleucids did stuff like this. And um, the point was that the, the, all the brothers die in terrible way, terrible punishment, terrible torture publicly, and all of them hold fast and don't eat chazi. Now, by the way, what would we have told them from a halachic perspective? You can eat it. Eat, eat chazer. Better eat chazer, right? But in the, the Ma in in the Maccabean mindset, and this is something we learned about, for instance, when the Maccabees refused to fight on Shabbat and were killed in some cases because they wouldn't fight because you can't violate Shabbat, right? So you have this uh, this they go all the way through, and notice that none of these boys are quoting Sukim. They're all making declarations, very proud, valorous declarations. But they're not quoting Sukim. When we get to the seventh, um, right, so now, um, ba -ba -bum, right, the mother was especially admirable. Look at verse 20. And worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each of them in the language of their ancestors, being Hebrew, 
Filled with the noble spirit, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage, look at that, and said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. Yeah, I wasn't worthy to have you. I was not I who gave you life and breath, nor set in order the elements of each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world who shaped the beginning of humankind, devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, in other words, resurrection, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. In other words, you're giving, giving up your life. And Antiochus just lost it, right? And the um, the king then tries to get the mother to advise her youngest son to eat the chazer, right? And so she pretends to do it. But what does she ask me whispering to him? Look at the line. Have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb and nursed you for three years, reared you and brought you up to this point in your life, and have taken care of you. I beg you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that's in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. Right? Creation ex nihilo. The woman's quite the philosopher. The same way the human race came into being, etc., accept death so that in God's mercy I may get you back again along with your brothers, a co absolute commitment and, and belief in resurrection, and she's going to be there. Right? And so the boy turns and says that to the king. I refuse to do it. Right? The king, in the end, what happens? He falls into rage. He tortures him actually absolutely worst. He died in valor. And then the mother dies. But we don't hear about the mother killing herself. All right. What, I want to finish one tiny, one tiny little point and then bring this all together. Remember I asked you at the beginning of this piece of the Shi'ur, what's the woman's name? And I told you that the common thing that you recognized it is to refer to as Hannah and her seven sons. Now, you notice that in the stories, she either has no name or she's called Miriam, Miriam Batanhu. There is a book from the 10th century called Josipan, Yosifon, which Jews for quite a while believed was a translation of Josephus. It wasn't. And in Sefer Yosifon, which is a, a kind of a sort of quasi-historic book, it tells the story and it records her name as Hana. And this, by the way, this is what you're looking at as the source of why people think the name is Hanaf from this story. But um, Yosifon is very problematic historically. And also, it's very clear, it's the same story that, that he's recording. And uh, and it seems to me that Hana is kind of moved from, uh, from the mention of Hana that we had in the Midrash as the other Ema Banim Smechan kind of conflated in. In any case, what's going on in this story? So I'm going to remove the text. I want to talk to you face on, see everybody. What was the original story? And it's quite clear when you read it through that it would take a huge coincidence for this to have happened more than once. A woman and her seven sons, all tortured on the same day, et cetera, et cetera. And very likely it's one story. The story that we read about in Maccabees is very historically anchorable. Because we know that that was a major part of the Hellenistic doctrine and the Hellenistic uh, uh, program was to acculturate, as it were, the barbarians of the East and try to bring the light of Greece to these backwards people and uh, to acculturate us. And the fact that Antiochus was uh, brutal and would torture people, etc., that's, that's well known. This story totally fits within a historic pro uh, project. Thing is, what happens when you have a very powerful story? And the story has meaning because it inspires people perhaps to valor, 
but because the context is very different in your life and you tell the story in its original form, the impact is not going to be nearly as strong. So what happens? All of the other versions of the story that we read are versions that start in the 4th century and onward. CE. And most of them are taking place in Eretz Israel, meaning there's Echaraba, there's Siktah, uh, probably, all except for the Bavli. They all take place in Eretz Israel. Now, again, the Romans are not forcing Jews to convert. They're not forcing idolatry on them. So what's what, what do we do with the story? So the suggestion has been made, and I believe that it is a very powerful suggestion, and there are two very big clues and a third very big clue that support this suggestion. That what this story is in the form that we saw it in the Bavli, and more critically, the form we saw it in the other sources, is really a response to Christianity. First of all, Christianity was the first challenge that we had from the inside of its type. There were always challenges from the inside. But Christianity, by the time it broke away and became an independent religion in the 4th century, late 3rd century, whenever it became independent, was a religion that maintained that it was the true heir of the Bible. We never had that before. If we would disagree with Greeks, we would disagree either in philosophy or in valor. Either, I'll explain to you why your thoughts are crazy and why Aristotle's wrong about the eternity of the earth or whatever, or I refuse to do it. The battles with the Christians, the battleground was the Tanakh. More familiar with that. And so what do you find the sons doing now that they weren't doing in Maccabees? Every one of them was quoting Psukim. Because that's the battleground. The second piece to the puzzle is, remember I pointed out that the last son uses a Pasuk that doesn't seem to, to address the issue. Every one of them says, there's only one God. Not a lot of Baudelaire. Fine, that's a response to saying Baudelaire. The last son always uses the pasuk, and the Midrash, it says, God has committed, that we have committed to God to never swap him for another God, and God has committed to us to never swap us for another nation. Why is that so powerful here? Because what was the essential Christian claim? God has rejected you, Israel of the flesh, and embraced us, Israel of the spirit. And so this is the response, that just as our commitment to God is unwavering, and under whatever pain, we will not give it up, we will not worship, similarly, God has made that commitment to us, and he's not given up on us. Now, there's yet another piece to the puzzle, which is not internal in these texts. Um, Eitan Reich wrote an article a number of years ago about this, in which he pointed out, that in Christian homiletics, the story from Maccabees was hugely embraced. In their own stories, they speak about their own martyrs as being like Maccabees. They love the book of Maccabees. That's why the book of Maccabees made it into their Bible. <laughs> and they embrace this story of the woman and her seven sons as a story, because you have to remember, in the first two centuries of Christianity, they were persecuted by the Romans worse than we were. And many of them died because of their belief in what they believed in. And so they saw this woman as 
a real inspiration of valid. And Chachamim were no doubt aware that they had taken that story. There was much dialogue that took place in the first couple centuries between Jews and the early Christians. And we knew what they were saying, and they knew what we were saying. And there's lots of evidence of that in Tanakh and in, in, in sorry in 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 the Gemara and in in, uh, in the Midrashim, both in Babylon and Shalmi and in the Midrashim, that there is dialogue going on. It's it's discrete dialogue, but it's dialogue. And if we know that they've taken that story and have turned it into a uh, a banner for their own uh, willingness to become witnesses and die for their cause. Well, we're not going to let them hijack the story. Notice how cleverly the woman doesn't have a name in the original story, but what name do we give her in the end? Her name in all the sources we have is Miriam. You notice that. That's very deliberate. We know who Miriam is. We know who their Miriam is. Right? There's no question. Chazal, we're quite familiar with the essential stories of Christianity. And so very likely the story that we're reading here is a story that exists and that is then embellished and, and dressed differently in order to inspire its listenership, not about something that happened 500 years ago under the Greeks, but rather something that's happening on a regular basis today when we're facing off against the Christians. These boys are our heroes. They're quoting Psukim, and the Psukim are not just about uh, an unwillingness to betray God, but also about an absolute commitment that God will never betray us and that we are still his people. So the bottom line is the way that we look at a Midrash, we have to think about it rigorously, and we have to think about it against the backdrop of its time. People will often say, often say I've heard this many times from, from colleagues, uh, what are you studying? Well, you know, it's a week class this year, or, or uh, you know, we're, we're, it's the end of the year, we're going to do something easy like Masachat Brachot. And I look at it and say, what's easy about Brachot? Well, it's all Agadah. What's easy about Agadah? The answer is, anything can be easy if you don't do it right, and anything can be challenging and worthwhile. And hopefully today's year was both uh, worthwhile and uh, and enlightening. Uh, if you if you do take your time and look into the details and compare the different sources and see what the storyteller is really trying to impress upon his audience. 